So let's, let's go into the message today. Last week, I started a sermon series on spiritual warfare, and the title is Winning in Spiritual Warfare. How many people want to win? I asked that last night. Some of y'all aren't sure. I hope you want to win in spiritual warfare. Um, but, but this is an interesting, interesting topic, and it's more than a topic. Whether you know it or not, it's your life. Um, I remember as a young kid, I was probably about 11 years old. I was with my family, my mom and my dad and my two brothers. We were on our way to church on a Sunday morning in my father's 1972 green Plymouth Duster. I was sitting in the middle. I'm the middle of three boys, three rambunctious young boys. And I'm sitting in the middle. My brothers are on either side. And I remember thinking deep thoughts that morning for an 11-year-old. Because growing up in the 60s and in the early 70s, what I saw every night on television was the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement and violence associated with that. And I remember thinking my deep 11-year-old thoughts, just saying, this makes no sense at all. It's so stupid that people are fighting. It's so stupid that all this is going on. I don't understand it. It's so stupid. And then it happened. My brother, who was on my right side, moved over into my sacred space. And it was on. We started fighting in the back seat. My other brother, just because if two of us are fighting, why not all three? We all started fighting in the back seat. And I remember the famous words of my father as he's driving the car and puts his hand over here and says, If I have to stop this car. I wondered why all the fighting, why all the war, why all the violence, and yet... Because someone infringed upon a little space in the backseat of a car, I was at war just like that. We're in a world at war. Today, I want you to stand with me, and we want to read from the Scripture. We're going to read a couple Scriptures. We're going to read a lot of Scripture today, but we'll start at the beginning in the great book of Genesis, and we'll read verses 26 and 27 from Genesis 1, and then we'll also skip over to Psalm 82 and read Psalm 82 as well. So uh, if you're ready, let's read the Word of God together, Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. And God said, let the land produce, oh, I'm sorry, I started in verse 24, I need new glasses, y'all. Help me, Jesus. The six after the two is 26. Okay, let's start again. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then turn over to Psalm 82 real quick. 
you've got it on the board. Psalm 82 and just verse 1, and we'll read that in the ESV. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. It's hard to read up there, but praise God. Let me pray as we go into this message. The title for today is, What's Behind the War? I know it says battle up there, but I'm changing it. What's behind the war? Let me pray. Father God, if we don't know what's gone on in the past, it's hard for us to live effectively in the present and to really hold on tightly to the hope of the future. So, Lord, today I pray that you'll give us insight to know what has happened and to understand it a little bit better than when we came into this room. And I pray that you would do that, Lord God, so that we would fight better in this war. Because we're in it whether we want to be or not, whether we understand it or not. Lord, help us to fight as believers in Jesus Christ and to win this war for the glory of your great name. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What's behind the war? I'm going to look at two main things today. The first main idea is this, understanding Yahweh's original purpose. We want to understand what was the original purpose of God before time began. And and it's, it's, it's pretty basic. It's what we read both in... In Genesis chapter 1 and in Psalm 82 also gives us insight. And so here is the thesis of what God's original idea was, his original purpose. You can turn it to the next slide. God's original purpose, Yahweh's eternal purpose, is to rule over all creation through his family. Do you hear that? He wants to rule creation through his family. Well, what what do you mean by God's family? Well, here's what I mean. His family consists of both human and supernatural beings that he has created and that he loves. God eternally purposed to rule over creation, not all by himself, but through a family. That, that That to me is wild. Even as you read in Genesis chapter 1 that he made man and woman in his image and in his likeness and he put them to rule over the earth. He he created this. We talked about it last week in, in the translation of the ESV. It speaks of in Psalm 82, the divine council. He created these other spirit beings, these other Elohim, these other gods with a small g, powerful creatures. And if you read through the scriptures, many times God is counseling with them in decisions that he's making. Now, God is sovereign, but God doesn't have control issues. Can you imagine if you were God for just a minute? Like, oh, I'm going to let you do this and you can do that and you do that. No, y'all can't do it right. You're not getting it just the way I want it, but God doesn't have control issues. I do. 
and I'm guessing you do too. I don't think I'm alone in that, but God creates a family and his desire is to rule over all creation through his family. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful desire that God has? And this is in two realms. It's in the earthly realm and it's in the heavenly realm or the material realm and the spiritual realm. And these two realities one day will fully come together when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and makes a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. God has a plan and he won't be stopped. But understand that his original purpose was to rule not just by himself. Does he need your help? Thank you for saying no. He don't need your help. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need the help of Michael, the archangel. He doesn't need the help of uh, Gabrielle. He doesn't need any help from anyone at all. But God created a family, and he wants to rule through them. And one day he will, through you and through me. The Bible says, I said it last week, we'll even judge the angels. My, my, my. So God has created all this. So I want us to look real quickly at, at a New Testament uh, a scripture that, that lets us know, here's what God is doing. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 His divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. Do you hear that? God has given you and me what we need to live a godly life. How? Through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, it says, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, now look at this, you might participate in the divine nature. That word there, participate, is in the Greek koinonia. It's from the word koinonia. It means to have a deep, intimate level of fellowship. And God says that I have called you in order that you will participate, have a deep fellowship with me. This is God's design. And he says at the end of that verse, how can we do that? Having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. Epithumia, lusts. Evil, lustful, ungodly desires. He says, you have escaped that through Jesus Christ. This is God's original purpose. And this is God showing us this is what he's doing in our lives. So, now we're on to the second and the last point. This is going to be the quickest sermon Pastor Larry ever gave. I know some of you are thinking that right now. Maybe not so. This is a long point, y'all. It's a number of points, actually, but here it is. We know God's original purpose, but we see a fourfold corruption of Yahweh's original purpose. And they all revolve around errant lusts or evil lusts. Most of us know first one, the earthly fall, Genesis 3, the lust of the eyes. The second one actually happened before the first one, the heavenly fall, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, 
We also see it in Ezekiel 28. The third one, the heavenly and earthly fall. We'll look at that together. And finally, number four, the spoiling of the nations. But you can see the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the lust of the flesh are involved with these falls, if you will. This is all what John talks about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. All that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life is not from God. But this is all involved in, in this fall. So let's move on and let's look at the first fall, the earthly fall. The earthly fall. We see it in Genesis 3 and verse 6. Let me read that verse for you. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Come on, Adam, what you doing, man? You're just chilling there while wifey is talking to a serpent. Adam's not on his game. But I want you to see in, in, in this verse the words that are highlighted. And, and we know this story. The serpent comes into the garden and, and God has told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you'll eat of it, you'll surely die. The serpent spins lies and Speak some things that sound almost just like the truth, but add some things and changes some things. But the scripture says, after this tempter comes and speaks to her, she saw. Hmm. And then she made a determination in her heart that what she saw was good for her. And then she took of it. We're going to see that pattern a little later again. So, in, in effect... God had said to them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's an interesting tree not to eat from. Why is that? Thank you for asking. Because God had always intended from the beginning to be there with Adam and Eve, to rule with his family. Yes, you can rule through me, but I'm going to give you the instructions. I'll let you know what I have you to do. But basically, by eating from that tree, they're saying, we don't need your instructions. We got this. We got this. And so... They fall away from God. They declare their independence from the God, from their creator, and from the one who has loved them forever. They declare their independence. They follow this lust of the eyes. And they sin. In that, they lose their koinonia, that fellowship. They lose that participation, that walking with God that God had given them already. They were walking. God was with them in that garden, and yet they pushed him away. And now they're pushed out of the garden. Brothers and sisters, when we make decisions to forsake God and go after the lust of our eyes and, and go after those things that we know God has said no to unequivocally, we do the same thing. We lose our fellowship with God. Now let me be careful. I'm not saying you lose your salvation, but you sure enough lose that intimate connection with God when you go your own way in sin. And so God draws us in and would want for us to understand the reality and the 
fullness of what it is to be with him. Listen, one day we're going to know that in fullness when Jesus comes again or when we go to be with him. But God wants us to know it as much as we can even now. And we can when we walk in his ways. And so the judgment comes. But the beautiful thing, I love this in the Bible. We see this in three of the four falls that we're going to talk about today. Right within the fall is also the redemption that comes out of it. Look at Genesis 3 and verse 15. Genesis 3 and 15. This is as God is cursing the serpent. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's speaking to the serpent and he says that ultimately this seed of the woman is going to crush your head. You'll bruise his heel. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was bruised for our iniquities. He was bruised and he was even put to death by the enemy. But Satan could not hold him down. The grave could not keep him. He got up on the third day with all power in his hands. In the NIV it reads, the offspring of the woman. But the word that's actually there is seed. Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 3, and he says, it says seed, not seeds. So it is the seed of the woman. The promised seed is coming through a woman. The word there in the Greek, the Hebrew word is zerah, but the Greek word is sperma, the sperma of the woman. We look at that and say, that doesn't exist. God says differently. He says there is a seed of the woman. There's only one that there's ever been, one seed of the woman. That's not you. That's not me. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed of the woman, and he's coming to save and to redeem this fall. The second fall is the heavenly fall. Look at Isaiah chapter 14 briefly with me. Isaiah 14. Just going to look at a few verses there. Starting at verse 12. Many of you know this. You've heard this. I just want to point out a couple things here. Isaiah 14, 12. The heavenly fall. Says, how you have fallen from heaven. Morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. Verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. Look at this. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. What does that mean, the stars of God? This is speaking about the divine counsel, the heavenly beings that are with God. We see this in Revelation chapter 12. The, the, the chapter of Revelation that deals with the great dragon, serp, the serpent, uh, Satan, who comes to the world to lead people astray. And it says in Revelation 12 and 4 that this great serpent with his tail sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven. That's not talking about physical stars. That's talking about 
these powerful spiritual beings, these Elohim that are swept to the ground and they become those who along with Satan try to lead the whole world astray, but they're not going to be successful in their mission. But here, so here we have these spiritual beings, these Elohim, and and here we have Satan himself falling from heaven. Goes on to say, I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is what Satan did. If that's not the boastful pride of life, I don't know what is. I'm going to replace God. And I now will be the most high. I will be El Elyon, God most high. It's interesting, the word that's used in Genesis 3 for serpent is the word nakash. The word nakash in Hebrew. The nakash is the one that tempts Eve in the garden. And that word can mean serpent. Now, we think of a little snake in the garden, but when uh, Hebrew people thought of a serpent in the ancient Near East, they weren't thinking of a little snake. They were thinking of a dragon. And we see that language picked up in Revelation chapter 12. But the word can also mean diviner, which is one who is able to get things from the spiritual realm and bring them into the natural realm. And it can also mean bronze or copper, which when they're When they are polished, they are shiny. And whenever the scripture talks about these supernatural beings, it talks about them as having luminescence and shining, shining stars. It uses the language of stars that we just saw as well. And so an ancient Near Eastern person, a Hebrew reading Genesis 3, would understand this isn't just some snake. This isn't even just some dragon. This is a super spiritual being, an Elohim that has come to lead this woman and to lead mankind astray. So before we have the earthly fall, we had the heavenly fall. Let's go on to the third fall. Aren't you glad there aren't three falls in, uh, in the year? I'm glad there's just one fall. Actually, I would like two. We could get rid of winter, have two falls, and just go fall, spring, summer. I'd be good. But here's the third fall, the heavenly, earthly fall. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, we're going to look at. And first of all, I want to look at just the first two verses there of Genesis 6. The first two verses. In the ESV, it says, When man began to multiply... On the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. In Hebrew, the word there is tov, which means good. The exact same word that was used in Genesis 3 of the fall of Adam and Eve. She saw that the tree was tov, good. says she saw that the daughters of man were good or attractive. And they took, she saw, she said good, and she took. Here we have these sons of God seeing, declaring that something is good, 
and then taking. They took as their wives women, any they chose. So this is what I'm calling, for lack of a better term, the earthly heavenly fall. This is the lust of the flesh, and this is crazy because this lust of the flesh is coming from supernatural, non-fleshly, non-corporeal beings in the first place. There are different translations or different understandings of this, and I hopefully I'll have time. I'll talk a little bit about one of the understandings that this refers to the line of the Sethites and, and those who weren't corrupted in the line of Cain, but the Sethites... I have a number of reasons to believe that that is not a correct interpretation. We'll look at that in a minute. But just go with me on this interpretation, that this is actually angelic supernatural beings taking on uh, flesh in some way and, ha- and mating and having babies, offspring, with women on the earth. Supernatural offspring. They produce this hybrid human divine type of offspring. Look again at Genesis 6, and we'll look at verse 4. It says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And in the Scripture, we see over and over again these references to uh, Nephilim doesn't occur a lot, but the sons of Anak, the Anakites. We see in Numbers chapter 13, as God's people are about to go into the promised land, they're going from the southern part of the promised land, the, the, the wilderness of Pan or Paran and Kadesh Barnea, and they go and they send the spies into the promised land. And when they get there, they see these giants. Verse 33 says, we saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. So there is something supernatural. Nephilim means giants. Some people believe it means fallen ones, but I believe the right etymology of that word is giants. So there's this large offspring, and we see over and over again in uh, in Numbers, and we see it in Judges, and we see it in, uh, in Chronicles and Kings, this idea of this race of mighty and giant people that are there. Some believe that actually the conquest is primarily about destroying those people, that hybrid, whatever you would call it, where the sons of God mated with the daughters of men, and we see those references there. This ends up leading towards the catastrophic flood in Genesis chapter 6. God uh, sees that the wickedness of man is just evil all the time. He says in verse 5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. So God sees this, he grieves, and he makes a decision. I'm going to wipe out all of humanity through a great flood. God does that, but he doesn't completely wipe it out, does he? Because there's redemption right in the story at the end of Genesis 6. Actually, in verse 8 of Genesis 6, he says, But Noah 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God found a righteous man on the earth, in this wicked earth. He found one. And from there, he's going to start and redo humanity. Let's look at this question that I brought up about Seth. Here's the question. Is Genesis 6, 1 through 4, actually about the line of Seth mixing with the line of Cain, which is what many have believed for many years, and my answer is almost certainly no. And I have some reasons. Number one, every other occurrence of the phrase sons of God in the Bible refers to supernatural beings. Now, that in and of itself is not a really strong argument because it doesn't occur that many times, but it does a few times. Number two, it's nowhere in the text do we see hints of Sethites and Cainites in Genesis chapter 6, I believe it's imported to help our understanding and to overcome our not knowing how in the world this could have happened, this supernatural thing. How would this happen? Well, it's easier to understand it another way. Number three, never this was never understood uh, that way by the ancient Jews or the early church. And so we see in uh, ancient Jewish writings, not canonical writings, but non-canonical, intertestamental writings, we see the idea of their totally believing that this is angelic beings mating with, with human women. And so that was the belief of the ancient Jews. It was also the belief in the early church, in the first couple centuries of the church. Everyone believed that. It wasn't really until the fourth century through Augustine that this Sethite and Cainite view came into uh into favor. Number four, there are New Testament parallels with it as well in 1 Peter 2 and 4 and in Jude 6. There's also strong parallels in the ancient in the ancient, uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern context. The Ugaritic texts talk about the same thing happening. And number six, it's not as crazy as many things in the Bible are anyway. How many of you believe that a teenage young lady somewhere in Palestine was overcome by the Holy Spirit and the seed of God was planted into her one day? How many of you believe that God became flesh in Jesus Christ? And so when we take the supernatural out of the Bible in order to fit our worldview, what we're doing is gutting the Bible of what it has to say to us. So this is this second fall, or the third fall. And now I want to move on to the fourth fall, the final one we're going to look at today, which is the spoiling of the nations. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Genesis 11, 1 through 9, if you have your Bibles. But let me focus, first of all, on verse 4. Verse 4 says... Then they said, this is the people in Babel, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, what I'm about to say is very technical, so I hope you'll understand this. Genesis 11 comes after Genesis 10. You got that? Even in Hebrew. Genesis 11 comes after Genesis 10. 
Genesis 10 is the table of nations. It is the sons of Sem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it lists out 70 different people groups in Genesis chapter 10. And so, and they have been told, they have been instructed by God that they are to scatter over the whole earth, multiply and fill the earth in the same way that God had commanded Adam and Eve to go forth and multiply and fill the earth after the flood. God does that again several times. It says, multiply and fill the earth, scatter over the face of the earth. But what do they do? Instead of scattering, they come together. And they make it their ambition to build a tower. In the Mesopotamian context, that would be called a ziggurat. Think of, uh, think of a, a slightly different pyramid. But they're building this ziggurat, this tower, and At the top of that tower, there is a chamber room. And in that chamber room is a place where the gods can consort with a human being, with a a woman, in order to produce offspring. That's what was at the top of this ziggurat. As a matter of fact, we have archaeological evidence of the Tower of Babel. We know where it is. We can see the chamber room at the top and the bed in that chamber room. The interesting thing is the bed in that chamber room has the exact same dimensions of the bed that we see later in Scripture for Og, the king of Bashan, who was an Anakite. And it has the exact same dimensions. So God is is drawing a picture uh, for us here. And so the nations, instead of doing what God says, make another decision and say, we're going to bring heaven to earth. We're going to go get it. And just like what happened in the the, the last fall that we talked about, it wasn't time for heaven and earth to come together like that yet. They're out of time. They're out of place. They're in rebellion against God. And so God says in this text in Genesis 11, let us go down and scatter them. What will confuse their language and will scatter the nations. So God comes down and scatters them. He scatters the nations. And what are these nations? These are the 70 nations that were dealt with in Genesis chapter 10. God disinherits the nations. He disinherits them. And he says, you don't want to be my people. You don't want to do what I'm calling you to do. Okay, you can have another God. And we'll see in Deuteronomy 32 in just a minute that God gives them to other gods, these lesser gods, these other Elohim. He gives them into their hands to rule over them. But even here, there is redemption in the text. Because right when you get to the first verse of chapter 12 of Genesis, it says, but God saw Abraham, Abram, and he was going to make a great nation out of Abraham. And in verse 3 of Genesis 12, it says, and through him, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But first, God disinherits the nations. Look at Deuteronomy 32. I don't think I have a slide for it, but Deuteronomy 32, I'm just going to read two verses real quick. It says, when the Most High, verse 8, when the Most High gave the nations as their inheritance 
when he divided all mankind, that's talking about what happened in Genesis 11. He set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons in, of Israel, it says in the NIV. But in the ESV, it says according to the number of the sons of God. Did I have a slide for that? I guess I don't have a slide for that. According to the numbers of the sons of God. We see this number of 70 for sons of God in ancient Mesopotamian uh, 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 context and in writings. The number was 70. That was the number of nations that were divided up from Genesis chapter 10. That's the number of nations that were scattered in Genesis 11. It is 70. So go on to the next slide. I want to look at this real quick. The significance of 70 in the Bible. We have 70 nations in Genesis 10. There are 70 sons of God in Deuteronomy 32. Now I'm getting that through looking at other contexts uh, in the ancient Near East that says there are 70. There are 70 elders in Israel. And if you get a chance, look at Exodus 24, 9 through 11. It will blow your mind because God sits down and has a meal with the 70 elders of Israel after he gives the law. There are 70 disciples sent out in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, which is signifying the fact that God is sending out disciples. 70 is the number of the nation. 70 is the number of the gods. In other words, God is saying, I want it all back. I'm going to get it. So he sends out the 70. And on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, if you look at the geographical territory of the nations listed in Pentecost, it corresponds to the territory in Genesis 10. In other words, when God pours out his spirit on all flesh. He's saying you were scattered, but now you're going to hear one word. You're going to hear one gospel. You're going to hear about one seed. You're going to hear about one God who has come to redeem you from all the nations under the sun. You're going to hear the gospel of Christ and come back together in the power of God. Brothers and sisters, this idea of spiritual warfare is as old as the first fall and it's in the second fall and the third fall and the fourth fall and it's in your fall and my fall as we've fallen from grace but god is always about restoring his people and his original purpose has not been thwarted he will rule and reign through his family that he's loved from eternity into eternity God is still doing his thing. So I want to look at one last scripture with you today. Go back to first or second Peter 1. And this is building on what we just read at the beginning of the sermon here from verses 3 and 4 that he wants us to be partakers of the divine nature, to participate in the divine nature. But how is it that we'll do this? He says, for this reason, make every effort. Tell somebody next to you, make every effort. Make every effort, he says, to add to your faith goodness. It starts with faith. You get that? If you're going to do anything for God, it has to start with faith. It has to start with believing that God is willing, that God is able, and that God will perform what he said he'd perform. And that means for us to hold on to Jesus and not let 
go ever. He says, but add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, or phileo, or brotherly love, and to, and to mutual affection, love, agape. He's saying, add these things. Brothers and sisters, if we just know all these facts about the Old Testament and some Hebrew words and some Greek words, but we're not walking in this, we are wasting our time. And I don't want anyone here to waste their time. I want us to grow in faith and in godliness and in love and in perseverance as the saints of God to rise up. To do what God has given us to do. Look at verse 8. It says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that tells me? There are Christians who love God and are going to heaven, but who are ineffective. And unproductive in their knowledge of the Lord. I've been one of those at times. I'm not going to ask for confessions right now. We probably know what it is. When we're not growing in these qualities, we're not honoring God with these qualities and growing and pursuing God with a whole heart. He says, you're ineffective. You're unproductive. How pathetic is that? God has given you a talent. God has given you a skill. God has given you ability. God has given you something to add to the body of Christ. He's given you something in in a way that you can participate, a way that you can make a difference in this world. But if you don't pursue him with your whole heart, you'll be ineffective and unproductive. All of this comes from holding on to the seed. The seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who has crushed the serpent's head. I'm going to close with these words from Martin Luther's song, Mighty Fortress. It says these words, listen, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. You can't stand up to Satan, demons, false gods. You cannot stand up against them on your own. That's what Martin Luther says in the next stanza. He says, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing we're not the right man on our side the man of god's own choosing you ask who that may be christ jesus it is he lord sabbath is his name from age to age the same and he must win the battle i'm gonna read one last stanza and i'll be done i'll be out of your way He says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. 
the prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not at him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word is the word made flesh. Jesus Christ and all the demons and devils and gods and all these others cannot stand against the one true champion who has won the victory. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you today for the victory that we have in Jesus and in him alone. Oh God, help us to understand this war. It's ugly, it's hard. We all have different things going on in our lives, our families, in this world, in our city, Lord God, that break our hearts over and over and over again. But Lord, we help us to hold on to the seed. Help us to hold on to Jesus. Lord, strengthen your church to do great exploits in Jesus' name. The praise and the glory of your great name, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.